Hello, I'm Alan Power and you're listening to a special episode of the National Trust podcast. In a slight departure from our normal upload schedule, this month we're bringing you an extra episode. Earlier this year, we launched a mini podcast series called Women in Power in conjunction with our national public programme of the same name. Women in Power marks 100 years since the representation of the People Act and some women being granted the right to vote. Over five episodes, this podcast series looks at the connection the Trust has to the suffrage movement. Today, we'll be giving you a sample of this series by sharing episode one. Women in Power is presented by Kirsty Wark, and she'll be your narrator for the rest of this episode. We hope you enjoy episode one of Women in Power. I'm just outside the House of Lords in Westminster, where 100 years ago, metres from where I'm standing, an act was passed that gave women the right to vote in UK general elections for the very first time. The focus on early female suffrage campaigners in the UK tends to centre on the actions of the suffragettes in London. But the path to the voting rights we enjoy today has a much more complicated story. It was a national movement, fought by women and men of all classes, people of all ages and in locations right across the UK. People who lived and worked at places now in the care of the National Trust were also involved and influential throughout the campaign. This year, right across the Trust, properties are delving into their archives for the stories of people who took part in or bore witness to these momentous events. In this five-part series, you'll hear from house stewards, curators, volunteers and experts in a unique account of how trust people and places helped to bring about the freedoms that we enjoy today. In this episode, we go back almost 300 years to witness the events that led to suffrage becoming the topic at the forefront of 19th century politics and how the trust's quarry bank and Bodnant Gardens are connected to Britain's first wave of female suffrage activists. I'm Kirsty Wark, and this is Women and Power, a podcast from the National Trust. The events that led to women first gaining the vote in the UK can be traced back as far as the mid-18th century and what was then the small northern town by the name of Manchester. In the early 1700s, Manchester is home to just 10,000 inhabitants, but as its cotton-making becomes industrialised, it sees an influx of workers from all over the world. Here's Helen Antrobus, curator at the People's History Museum. It's this small town and suddenly it becomes the heart of industry and the heart of exchange. By the mid-1800s, Manchester has become a burgeoning city of 400,000. The continual stream of people and products make Manchester's landowners, merchants and industrialists rich. As the gulf between the city's rich and poor grows, workers start to talk of revolt. We see all these small radical moments. William Wilberforce speaking here at Manchester Cathedral about the abolishment of slavery. You see Abraham Lincoln writing us a letter for helping with the blockade. The working class fighting for their own rights. Manchester becomes the centre of cotton in the UK. Mills start to pop up all over the city, earning Manchester the nickname Cottonopolis. Manchester does start out with these big factories, but very soon that changes and actually the factories move out of this big city that suddenly blossomed. 
Even before Manchester's cotton boom, a mill strategically located outside Manchester in the small village of Stile is the trust-managed Quarry Bank. Here's the National Trust's Emma Richmond. As you approach Quarry Bank, you feel like you've come to quite a secluded spot. There's trees everywhere, you're out in the countryside, and you sort of walk down through all this green, and it's quite surprising, actually, when you stumble across this big red brick mill dominating the landscape. A very functional building with its chimney floating up into the sky. It's a feat of imagination to cast your mind back to all the hustle and bustle and hive of activity that it would have been right at the start of the, the 19th century when it was a fully operating mill. We're looking down at the mill at Quarry Bank, but just a few yards to the right, you can see Quarry Bank House, which was the family home of the mill owners. If we make our way down to Quarry Bank House, we can talk a little bit more about how the Gregg family lived. The Greggs have traditionally been a merchant family. That is, until a young and ambitious Samuel Gregg is seduced by the potential business opportunities he sees in cotton production. When the site at Quarry Bank becomes available to lease, Samuel seizes the opportunity to build his first mill there. It's a business decision that will see Samuel become one of Britain's biggest producers of cotton. Within that community of mill workers and servants sits the Gregg family home, located just metres from their large working mill. The estate here very much is a, a microcosm of life in the early Industrial Revolution. It is one of the only surviving Industrial Revolution sites where you can see the complete industrial community. The mill with its working machinery, the mill owner's family home, you have their gardens, their wider estate that they used as their pleasure grounds. You also have the apprentice house where child workers would have lived and Style Village where the mill workers lived. And this is the, pretty much the only site where you can see that whole community and how their lives intertwined. We're standing in the drawing room of Quarry Bank House. Out of the drawing room window and out of many of the windows of the house, you've got this fantastic view down the river, along the riverbank where you've got rhododendrons. And in May and June, they really burst into full colour. But what you can't see and what no window in the house would have shown you at the time is the mill, which is right next door. Samuel's decision to build his home in such close proximity to the mill is common for many early industrialists. It enables them to show off their wealth, status and achievements to all who come to visit. The fresh air and open space of style makes it a relatively pleasant place to live, especially when compared to the lives of workers in the city of Manchester just 12 miles away, a place where radical thinking continues to brew. Here's Sophie Duncan, Junior Dean of Arts at the University of Oxford. Some of the most radical literatures coming out of Manchester. It's a very modern city. It can be seen by other parts of the country as quite brash, but it's not surprising that you've got a different kind of urban thinking and elite that's springing up there. In 1819, the festering discontent explodes onto the streets of Manchester. Radical speaker and agitator Henry Orator Hunt comes to the city for a talk about new laws that leave workers unable to afford basic food. 
He joins with the Manchester Reformer Society to organise a rally. But what starts out as a peaceful gathering quickly turns into what's now known as the Peterloo Massacre. Soldiers descend upon the protesters. Henry Hunt is arrested, women and children are attacked, and many spectators are crushed and killed. Helen Antrobus again. Suffrage is, is sort of the biggest issue that's campaigned for that, and it's one of the first times we see suffrage being campaigned for in such a mass scale. What's really interesting is that the Manchester Women's Reformist Society are there, and when they're depicted on cartoons at the time after Peterloo, they're depicted as these ugly, overweight, stupid women who are only doing it to get male attention. Because of Peterloo, people are starting to think, yeah, maybe the working man should have the vote, maybe we should enfranchise more people, but not women. So even though it's great that we look at Peterloo and we see so many people becoming aware of suffrage and fighting for suffrage. Women are still out of the picture. Few from the upper classes choose to use their wealth and influence to support the fight for workers' rights. But in 1866, this is all about to change. A new law that discriminates against female street workers alters the way some wealthier women decide to use their status. The law is the Contagious Diseases Act. Here's Oxford's Sophie Duncan. This was a series of legislation where police could seize from the streets any woman they suspected of being a prostitute. Working class women could be seized from the streets and brutally internally examined. That was such a horrific idea for women who perhaps had not been politically active at all that that got them involved. And so you have these very nicely brought up women these are good Victorian families who suddenly are discussing in their drawing rooms and fundraising for working class women, some of whom are prostitutes, and that really is a turning point. One woman incensed by the act is Alice Dawson, granddaughter to the owners of Quarry Bank Mill and a passionate campaigner for the act's repeal. Ruth Colton, research associate from the University of Manchester, speaks from the study at Quarry Bank House, where Alice would have spent much of her time. Alice Dawson in 1870 first became involved in this campaign. This is one of the first times when women actually, in a very visible way, are actively campaigning against the government. So I think for a lot of, a lot of men whose, whose wives as well were taking part in this campaign, this would have been a, a shock moment, seeing these women actually you know, actively involved in, in politics in this dramatic way. They really had a voice and a vision for the first time. Rather than taking to the streets and protesting in public, the preferred method of protest by upper-class ladies is a well-penned letter. Letter writing was incredibly powerful at the time. Alice was a fervent letter writer. These letters actually would have had a real impact on the people who were receiving them, particularly given who she was in society. If we move over to the, the desk here in the study, we can read some of her diary entries and some snippets from the letters that she wrote. So this is an extract from Alice's diary um, from 1871. So she'd only just become involved in the, the campaign to repeal the Contagious Diseases Act. And she said, Mr Bruce said in the House last night that the government would not do anything about the CD Acts, that's the Contagious Diseases Acts, this session. If there had been any hardship or grievance, they would have felt bound to, but it's unnecessary and there is no time, etc. Oh, weren't we angry? I couldn't resist writing to Mr B to tell him so. 
What's really nice about this quote is that it really reveals some of her personality and she signs off with, I couldn't resist writing to Mr B to tell him so, Mr B being Mr Bruce who'd been speaking and it just reveals again that she immediately jumped back into action as a response to what had been happening in Parliament. So after the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act, Alice, like a lot of other middle-class women who'd been involved in the repeal, looked around for other campaigns for women's rights that they could get involved in. Those women don't have to wait long. In 1886, the Contagious Diseases Act is repealed and an event takes place that will kickstart the suffrage movement we know today. Since the Peterloo Massacre, some progress has been made with male suffrage. The Great Reform Act of 1832 has extended voting rights for men, but progress for women has remained stagnant. However, an MP by the name of John Stuart Mill is confident this can be changed. He hopes he can persuade the government to amend the Great Reform Act to include women. Suffragette historian Jane Grant explains more. John Stuart Mill, the philosopher, who was also a Member of Parliament, wanted to bring in an amendment which said that women could be enfranchised. And in order to do this, he invited women to draw up a petition asking for this, and they managed to draw up a petition of 1,499 names, which, if you think of it in a pre-digital age, was ahead of a lot of people. One of the people who helped to collect these names was Millicent Fawcett. She was 19. She was too young to sign it, but she was old enough to collect the names for it. And although it was unsuccessful, it didn't, it, it didn't change the reform bill, this act of the petition set in motion the whole process of the suffrage movement. And after that, you know, organisations sprang up everywhere. Across the country, women set up grassroots organisations to campaign for female suffrage. A year after the failure of John Stuart Mill's petition, the National Society for Women's Suffrage is established in Manchester by amateur biologist Lydia Becker. She holds what is thought to be the first ever public meeting for female suffrage. The meeting is attended by many women who go on to become influential in the suffrage movement. Among the crowd, an 11-year-old girl watches eagerly as her mother takes to the stage. This is Laura Pochin of Bodnant Gardens in North Wales. I'm Becky Hitchens and I'm the Visitor Experience Manager at Bodnant Garden in North Wales. It's an 80-acre garden. It's a real horticultural dream. And this was the home of Laura McLaren and her family, Henry Davis Pochin and his wife Agnes Pochin. And they were both real free thinkers. They were radical reformers, really. They, they were keen to make the world a better place and they passed that baton on to Laura. Henry actually chaired the very first public meeting on women's suffrage in the 1860s. Henry chaired that and Agnes spoke at it and Laura attended in that audience. They did receive abuse afterwards. I think she would have found the bravery really inspiring. The thing they were fighting for was just and right and fair and she wanted to continue that forward. Laura was a really prolific writer. She wrote loads of letters to various people. She wrote to newspapers, she wrote speeches, and we've been lucky enough to be able to access some of that in the family archive. I can show you some of that today if you want to come this way. 
When Laura later marries, she pens her letters and correspondence under her married name of Laura McLaren. There are lots and lots of letters that Laura wrote, and she's writing letters right from the 1870s up till um, 1918. She writes to people that she didn't know as, as letters of introduction. She writes to the press a lot. And one of my favourite quotes that she, she says... A nation ruled by men alone is like a bird which tries to fly with one wing bound. It rises, flutters and falls again to earth. Dare to unbind that wing and have patience till it gains strength. Then men and women will rise together and lift humanity to heights before unknown. She's a really powerful writer. She uses words in a really creative way. She uses lots of analogies and she makes it... You know, she hits it home to the people that are listening, so she talks about stuff that's really relevant and like, juicy. She's, she's, she's witty and she's funny. She's, yeah, she's incredible. With scores of regional suffrage groups spread across the country, and now much older Millicent Fawcett decides their strength in numbers. In 1897, she founds the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, more commonly known as the Suffragists. Millicent's hope is that her union will create a single force to lobby the government and finally put female suffrage on the political agenda. Suffragist activity starts immediately. Here's Jane Grant. Their methods were lobbying, marching, public speaking, letters. End. I mean, the, the politicians were absolutely bombarded. Despite their collective force and persistence, the suffragist campaign isn't making the impact that Millicent had hoped for. The suffragists were having little success. Their methods were, you know, they were fighting really hard and consistently and so on. But, but actually nothing was happening. Nothing much was happening. This lack of progress does not go unnoticed by members of the union. Quarry Bank's Alice Dawson, now secretary to her local suffrage society, feels this must be addressed. You get the sense from some of what she says that had she been a bit younger, maybe she'd have liked to have been involved in a much more direct way with the suffrage movement. There are three women in particular who share Alice's sentiment, a mother and two daughters by the names of Emmeline, Sylvia and Christabel Pankhurst. In 1903, with growing frustration, they split from Millicent's National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies and found the Women's Suffrage and Political Union. Their group will move from the ladylike protest favoured by Millicent Fawcett to militant activism, which will change the face of the suffrage movement in unimaginable ways. Next time on Women in Power... We explore how the turn of the 20th century brought a new energy, urgency and notoriety to the fight for women's suffrage and how some of the Trust's most unassuming locations were the breeding ground for activists involved in many of the suffrage campaign's most notorious actions. Women and Power is more than just this podcast. To celebrate the centenary of the Representation of the People Act, the National Trust is running a year-long programme of talks, exhibitions and installations as well as publishing guidebooks and online articles. To learn more about the National Trust's Women and Power programme, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash women and power. 
And to learn more about the trust locations featured in this episode, type Quarry Bank Mill or Bodnant into the search bar of our website, nationaltrust.org.uk. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find great audio. While you're there, you might also enjoy episodes of the Trust's flagship audio programme, the National Trust Podcast. To find out more about audio programming from the National Trust, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the National Trust podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find the remainder of this series on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Next week, we'll be back to our usual schedule. Until then, from me, Alan Power, goodbye.